Today I'm going to release my conversation with my wife, Amanda. I am hoping that you can be patient with me uh, in this regard. Uh, I, I tend to have taken up a lot of the conversation. And while some of that uh, criticism may be deserved in terms of me uh, chiming in, my wife tends to be quite introverted when it comes to speaking publicly on these issues. And so it's probably a combination of me trying to ensure that we share uh, the data and the experiences around our life, uh, as well as trying to protect her and to help her uh, feel comfortable as we had this conversation. When the conversation was over, I was a little frustrated with myself uh, in taking up so much time, but I think my wife came across brilliantly, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with her. And so now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Every man must leave the garden, every woman must leave, and every man will be forsaken, and every woman must bleed. But everything will be forgiven when you get back home. Everything that once was broken is now completely whole, completely whole, completely whole, completely whole, completely whole. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Today, and I'm your host, Bill Real, by the way, today we've got on here Amanda K. Real, my beautiful wife. Amanda, how are you today? I'm awesome. Thank you. So this has been exciting. This is something we've wanted to do for a long time. And uh, my wife, she is a sleeper. She likes to sleep in in the morning, and I like to get going. Uh, so the interviews in the morning were off limits. We both worked during the day. And so we finally found an evening where we were bored to death, had nothing better to do. And here we are to sit down and have this conversation. So I wonder, uh, so I, obviously I'm grateful for this chance to kind of have my wife on and uh, to talk about uh, her life and to give you guys a chance to get to know her better. But let's start off, uh, uh, babe, let's start off with you talking about uh, your growing up. What was your childhood like? And maybe tell people where you were, where you grew up and, and what that all looked like. All right. So um, I have seven siblings. There is eight of us. And then later on, my parents did foster care. So we have a ninth sibling that's unofficially adopted. Um, but it was just the eight of us growing up. And I am the only child born in Ohio, the older ones and I'm number six. Our, the older ones were born in Kentucky and the younger two in West Virginia. We lived in that tri-state area. Um, so I started off at the very southern tip of Ohio. When I was about 10 years old, I moved up north on the lake. But um, fun. With that many siblings, if you're bored, it's your fault. So we had a lot of fun, a lot of stick pulling games, leg wrestling. Are we allowed to talk about the pet goat? You just crossed the line, buddy. Okay, so the pet goat is off limits. You'll have to message my wife privately uh, if you want to ask about the goat. What was the goat's name? Um, it wasn't Perkins. Perkins was the dog. The dog. No, it was in my head, I think, until you said, ask me. Uh, I'm thinking a name like Buster. That'd no, be a it was like a, like a normal boy name, like Gary. Paul or I think. <laughs> so the goat was <laughs> I named, don't remember. So the goat was named Gary. No, it's not. Okay. So your childhood, you said stick pulling. Like what other kinds of things did you, what kind of other things did you do growing up? That's a good question. I remember always having fun. Always in the house? We rode bikes. And when I was in Southern Ohio, we actually had woods as our backyard and we would swing on vines. And I don't know how none of us broke our necks because many of them would break when we were really high up in the air. 
It was really fun, though. We had a neighbor that had a pet skunk. Oh, that goes along with the goat, doesn't it? It does. That's... Um, yeah. Anyways, it was it was fun. And you had a dog that was kidnapped, right? A Doberman Pinscher, of all things. Okay. Tell me about its kidnapping. Like, that's kind of a cool story. I mean, it's sad, but kind of a cool story. I was just little, and the one day the dog wasn't there, and my parents said someone stole her. So I don't maybe, know how cool that story is. Maybe your parents put him down. I don't know. Maybe that's what happened. Um, what, what are your parents like? Tell us about your parents. Um, well, anybody that knows me personally, I am my father's daughter. He is a lover. He has a big heart. He is funny. He's ornery. He's, he's great. My mother is completely awesome. But she's an introvert. She's a touch-me-not. She likes her husband, her children, and her grandchildren. Um, and the rest of the world can go to hell, right? Correct. Um, but she would give you the shirt off of her back if she thought that's what you needed. Behind her back, I call her a campfire marshmallow. Kind of crusty on the outside, but nothing but goo in the middle. Yeah, your parents are pretty cool. I like them quite a bit. Um, let's talk a little bit about like what Mormonism was like as a younger person. And maybe also tell us the the story about your your mom's side of the family coming into the church and your dad uh, coming into the church. Uh, but also tell us about your growing up as a, as a Latter-day Saint. So, yeah, I don't have pioneer stock, and we don't go back that far, actually. Um, so my mom's parents, and I'm not sure exactly how old she was at the time, but missionaries knock on their door and we are over Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they're like, hey, we already belong to your church. And so they go back to the records and they can't find them. So they go back to the house. Well, no, Mr. and Mrs. Beeman, you aren't. And so then they found out they belonged to the, what was then called the reorganized church, which is now the Community, Community of Christ. Christ. And so then they took the discussions and got baptized, and you know then their their children were, and then my dad, when meeting my mom as a teenager at seventeen, he became a convert. Um, so that's our brief history of Mormonism. So I was born in the Covenant um, church. Growing up, they weren't very strict about the home things like the scripture study and the family home evening. Those things were hit or miss. Your parents weren't. Yeah, my parents weren't. So, like, we went to church every Sunday. We were TBM that way. But like I said, the like the scripture study in the family home evening was sometimes hit or miss. I thought family home evening was fun when we did it. You know, you get to sing and play, and so that's always fun. Going to church a little before I was 10 and moved up north was fun. I had um, two of my uncles in that ward and some cousins. And, you know, so that was fun. You get to meet and play with your cousins. So I had a good time. Always loved primary. I like singing, even though I can't do it. So primary is fun because you could just get to sing most of the time. Okay, so we're racing here through your life. Uh, we're getting through all the boring things because it's when you meet me that life gets really exciting. Of course. So let's, uh, let's talk about your teenage years. Uh, anything that stands out during that time period of your life? In general, or the church, or... All of it. What? Oh, let's see. I was popular with my friends. I always had a boyfriend. Church-wise, I always knew something was kind of off. I, I wasn't good enough for the church, so I already knew at that point I would not get married in the temple because I wasn't good enough to. So I already, as a young teenager, knew temple marriage 
was not in my future. So you seen yourself as failing at doing this Mormon thing, and you had already set out the expectation that you were going to have to settle for something less than a temple marriage. I don't know if I would exactly say failing, but certainly not worthy of it. So maybe not trying as hard. So I guess maybe failing because I knew I wasn't worthy of it. So yes, I already knew I was not going to be going to the temple. How old were you when you moved to Ohio? So Northern Ohio, I was about 10 years old. So 10 years old, you moved to Northern Ohio, hashtag tender mercy. And so you're in Sandusky, Ohio, which if, if anybody here has listened to all these episodes, you know that we were really close to Cedar Point. Uh, it was your dad who took a position with Cedar Point. Uh, and if I remember that, that ends up with you spending a lot of time over there. Yes. Yeah, so my father is a carpenter. And he took a full-time position as a carpenter maintenance, so he worked on the hotels, he would walk the wooden roller coasters to make sure everything's in place, and he just kind of did a lot of things, and so he was full-time, so he worked in the summer and the winter both. And so what that allowed us to do is get free passes. So we had free passes to the park itself, we had free passes to the water park, and at the time they also had a ferry, and the pass got us on the ferry too. And I only lived four blocks from the water, so yes, my siblings and myself, we would walk down to the ferry and just be there all day. Half the day at the water park, half the day at the amusement park, or whatever we felt like. And we were just back and forth all the time because we had the luxury of that ferry. So I had a really amazing childhood there as well because I love roller coasters. And so I was maybe a little spoiled because I got to do that. What, uh, when was your first job? When I was 16. And what was that at? McDonald's. So you you went to a different school than me. I went to the Perkins School System, and I'm in Perkins High School when you and I meet, and you're going to Sandusky High School, the, the Blue Streaks, and uh, we're in different schools. Maybe tell people a little bit, I mean, people have heard me talk a little bit about my uh, growing up and the things I participated in. What were the kind of, some of the things you did kind of going through school? What were some of the activities and things you spent your time on? I was a band geek. Um, I don't think I did much outside of that. I played saxophone, started off on the alto sax. Love it, love it, love it. Jazz band, you know, then there's football season. And during the football season, I twirled the flag, and that was a ton of fun, and I loved that. I also, in one jazz band, I played the tenor sax, and that same jazz band, I would play the soprano sax. And then eventually, my band director moved me to the symphonic band, which was the better of the two bands that we had with the Barry sax. And I loved that because I love the bass. And so it was really fun for me to kind of take on that role. And I loved it. And I, I liked doing the flag corn in the football season too, because during concert season, you're like, okay, I'm getting kind of sick of this. So then I would flip it and I was able to twirl flag and it kind of changed things up. I We had what was called solo ensemble during concert season and it's where we could compete with solos or ensembles. So the way it sounds, the band would have a, a number to play and then I would love doing solos because I would get ones. So yes, I'm going to toot my own horn right now. I kind of was really good at the saxophone when I was in school, so... I thought that was really fun. I know you and I are pretty much the same because I could play hot cross buns on the recorder, mm-hmm. and it was it was kind of in that same you know, in that same kind of level. You and I competing, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so now I've told people the story before about how we met. I just, I'm, you know, we always teach in Mormonism that in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. 
wonder if maybe you can tell the audience about your memory, your because we're also told memory is tricky. It's the reason the eighteen uh, or eighteen thirty two account of the first vision is different than the eighteen thirty eight account is that Joseph Smith's memory might be a little off, and so we know memory's tricky. Maybe tell people your memory of how you and I met. So my memory, I think you like to tell people we met in the special sauce at the Big Mac. Yeah, yeah. You, you would make the <laughs> bottom half of the Big Mac, and I was making the top half of the Big Mac. And as we put it together, right where the pickles and the cheese went, mm. right at that special, sauce, special sauce, that's where you and I, yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm a little bit of a flirt, and... So when you started working there, I was like, oh, here's another cute boy I get to flirt with at work. But for some reason, it seemed like we didn't work together a whole lot. And I wasn't happy about that because I liked flirting with you. And so in the manager's office, in, in one of the cupboards, they had a list of the employees with their phone numbers. And so I wrote down your number and I'm like, I'm going to call this dude. So I called you, but I think you asked me out. Yeah, I, I wanted to call you, but I've told people before I was super afraid of rejection. By the way, I'm not sure about the laws. Is it legal to take a phone number of an employee off of a company wall and call it for personal reasons? You can have me arrested if you'd like. Okay. All right. We will be putting you in cuffs tonight. Um, I don't think you should tell your audience that. Okay. We'll see how that goes over. <laughs> Um, sorry. So we're working together. You call me cause I'm afraid of being rejected. And I, I thought you were a fun to flirt with as well. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, it. You were so cute. I enjoyed the time we, we worked together. Um, so essentially you call me, I ask you on a date and maybe you should tell the listeners about that first date. So you took me out to dinner, some buzzes. Grill? Buzz's Eating Experience. Yeah, Buzz's Eating Experience. Isn't that kind of a weird name for a restaurant? Yes, but it's really <laughs> ironic because you took me to the movie Toy Story and Buzz is in that. Yeah, there's a buzz in Toy Story. That was totally planned, by the way. Not really, guys. That was totally planned. Um, and so I took you to go see Buzz Lightyear and then took you to Buzz's Eating Experience. It was really fun because you didn't know it at the time. But I love Disney movies, and so we're watching Toy Story, and I want to laugh out loud. But I'm like, this is a kid movie. He's going to totally make fun of me if I laugh out loud. So I'm trying to stifle my laugh, but then my whole chest and body just starts shaking. So I'm like, that's even more embarrassing. But you didn't let on that you even noticed or whatever. You were playing it cool, and Yeah, I, I took you to a Disney fun. movie, and your favorite thing was collecting Disney movies. Like, we have... It took it took forever. I think we still have them somewhere. There's like a thousand VHS tapes of <laughs> I don't Disney know about movies. A thousand, but yes, uh, I I've slowed down. I don't know. The kids got older, and I've stopped collecting them somehow, and that makes me a little bit sad. But yeah, and then so after that, this was in December, it was by December, the way. So the Christmas lights are already up, and we knew we didn't want to go home yet, but we didn't know what else to do. So I'm just like, hey, do you want to drive downtown and look at the Christmas lights? And we just talked the whole time. We talked time. to each other and we, we missed the Christmas lights. The we Christmas went past lights. them, <laughs> yeah, we but we didn't take them. them in. Like We got past them and we're like, oh, we didn't even see the Christmas lights because we were enjoying the conversation we were having with each other so much. It really was um, It really was an awesome date. Like The movie was enjoyable, just being next to you. And then at the dinner, it seemed like we just talked with each other nonstop. And then even on the way back, we talked nonstop, which reminds me too, when I went to pick you up, you had given me the address, 1978, Fox Run Trail. 
And I pull up to the house and I walk up to the door and I knock on the door and this six foot four really burly man opens up the door and uh, and he says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, is Amanda Boggs here? And he looks at me and goes, Amanda who? And about a three second pause and my my face goes pale. I'm at this point panicking that I've got the wrong house. And I hear you on the other side of the living room go, Daddy, stop it. Let him in. And uh, Oh, you have to have a better tone than that. Daddy, stop it. Let him in. So it was like that. Tell me about, so you and I meet. We start dating. Uh, anything kind of early on there in our relationship or in terms of maybe me coming into the church that 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 you or want to talk about your relationship with the church or what you perceived as I was coming in? Any of that kind of thing stick out to you? So, so yeah, we're, we're talking to each other more and more. And so then you see church is this thing that I do, not quite ready to come on Sundays. So you start coming on Wednesday nights mutual with me. And you came to Young Women several times. And finally, they had to kick you out. They're like, Bill, if you're going to keep coming, you have to go to the Young Men's. So I remember you doing an oatmeal facial with me. Yeah, I got my first facial with you at Young Women's. And it was kind of fun. And I was actually kind of sad they kicked you out. It was kind of cool. I met Young Women's. I got all these all these girls around. I'm the only guy in the room. It was just kind of cool. Like I'm getting facials and these chicks are all giggling and stuff over this. It was kind of funny. Yeah, so then they kicked you out to Young Men's and... And young men's is fun because we're playing basketball and we're doing boy stuff. And uh, so that was really cool. Your dad is the person in the family who's the encouragement for me to kind of jump in. And so I take the discussions. I get baptized. And it feels like it's the next week that we get married, right? It feels like it's that fast. (laughs) But I join when I'm 17. We get married a week after I turn 19. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts on marriage, going to the temple for the first time, getting in the endowment, being sealed, any any thoughts you have about that? You know, I was nervous going in because obviously people can't talk about the temple, so you have no idea what to expect. And maybe I'm weird, but I actually liked the washing and the anointings. Um, I was not open to any of my feminist parts yet, so... I didn't even catch on to anything that was really being said during the ceremony. And so I didn't even know, especially, you know, especially that first time when you go, like everything's so new and you just get so much thrown at you. Like, I don't even think I heard anything the first time. And our temple was, gosh, it was before Columbus was. So we like, we'd have to go eight or nine hours to even go to a temple. So our temple attendance wasn't very often. I think the closest temple was Chicago, which was like six or seven hours away. But that wasn't our temple. No. The DC temple was eight hours away, but that wasn't our temple. The Toronto temple was our temple, and that was 10 hours away. Yeah. Um, So you and I get married, and... Right away, I take very seriously this covenant that you are to hearken unto your husband mm. as your as your husband hearkens unto the Lord. Yes, you did. And so, so maybe talk for a moment because I don't mind this. I I actually enjoy as we talk about often in the podcast. I really think vulnerability is important, and and I think my younger self. There's a lot of things I wish my older self could have sat that guy down <laughs> and said a lot of things too, but. Um, talk for a moment about uh, unrighteous dominion in the young real household. <laughs> okay, so, well, I'll start off by, as far as Mormonism goes, 
like you were a rock star. So even though you were young in it, like you were old in it because you took it that serious and you were getting all the callings and whatever. So there was this sense of pride because I'm like, this girl who was never going to the temple, you were my savior and came along. You took me to the temple and now you're elders quorum president and, you know, moving on up until, you know, everybody knows you're a bishop at 29. So, you know, I get to wear these peacock feathers because, you know, look at my husband. He's so awesome. He's great and wonderful, blah, blah, blah. But yes, behind the scenes, you really liked the dominion part of it. Luckily, or maybe not luckily, we only lived right around the corner from my parents. So probably that first couple of weeks of marriage, we were at my parents' house quite a few times with me in tears. Yeah. So my dad had to turn around and show you the scriptures about unrighteous dominion and how that's not good and... Yeah, I remember those conversations taking place at our McKelvey Street home. So my gut tells me we're talking probably the first year or two, not necessarily just the first two weeks. I think I was an ornery, uh, patriarchal, uh, what's the word I want to use, uh, heavy, heavy influence uh, in the first year or two of our marriage. And as you point out, there were times where I would just drive you to tears and you'd go to your parents' house. You'd tell your mom and dad what was going on. And then your dad would show up with his quad in his hand and he'd sit next to down to me and go, you know, you know, Bill, I love you as a son. Uh, and, and I want you to know I love you, but I'd like to share a few thoughts with you. And I'm hoping you're willing to listen to these. And we would open up the scriptures. And I remember him opening up to 121 and talking about unrighteous dominion. And right away, I'm sensing, like, wait a minute. This this thing that was explained to me was like, hey, I'm the boss. I'm in charge. I get to rule. And her job is to, you know, have me make the decisions, and then she uh, essentially get in line. And and this young version of me is, is has to learn really quickly that this isn't going to – if I keep this up, then I'm, I'm going to drive her away. And so I'm not going to say that I fixed it overnight because you would you would certainly speak up and say that's not the case. But but made some adjustments then, and then over the next maybe ten years, made uh, just a, a shift in adjustments over time to the point where I hope we're to a point today where it's way 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 different. Twenty one years. I hope it's way different. And yes, it is. So the endowment didn't bother you much. You didn't have a problem promising obedience. You, you've got this husband who's both feet in. What were your thoughts about church as you, as you kind of go through a decade, the first decade or so of our marriage in the church? Like, what did church mean to you? What was it? What was, what was its value to you? Even though I still didn't feel worthy of it, the flip side of that coin was it was also treating me well because of the position you were in. So, you know, I'm in, I'm in the presidencies and things as well. And, you know, being told by bishops and other leaders that we're a star couple and all the teenagers can look up to us and we're such an example. And, you know, so it was cool. We were the rock stars. Outwardly, we are hitting it out of the park. And we've got, in, you know, inwardly, privately, we've got the same issues every marriage does. We're struggling at times. Our, you know, we're, one of us is ready to throw in the towel. And those kinds of things happen in, I think, every marriage. And we certainly had our fair share of those. But outwardly, showing up on Sunday with our suits and our dresses and our smiles, it certainly seemed like we were the ideal Mormon family. 
Very much so. So we got four kids. Do you want to talk about our four kids? Our four children. I don't know how it happened, but every time we had a kid, I thought they were more funny and more funny. Um, <laughs> we just have funny kids. They are funny. Um, they're witty. They're they're quick. They're smart. They they say things without a hesitation, and it's something that would have taken me two or three minutes. Like I think I'm funny too, and I'm obviously creative, and I come up with things. But but it takes me a little bit of time. Whereas my kids are like, you say something, and immediately they just come back with a witty comment. So our oldest is William, and he has that what I call first child syndrome. Um, I I feel the first child is the one that is more goal-oriented and um, stays in line better. I mean, not that they don't, and he didn't, you know, venture out and try things, but, you know, wants to set the example for his siblings and is going to make something of his life. And he's just really smart and caring. He's a lot like you in the way that you protect people and don't want to see anybody pushed around. Emily, she... So our oldest is William. I don't know if we said his name, but our oldest is William. He's named after me and I'm named after my dad. And then Emily's our next oldest. So Emily, um, she's, she's kind of protective too in the fact that there's two groups of people you don't want to mess with when she's around because she will cut you. And that is LGBTQ people and special needs children. Um, There was this boy, actually, she had a little crush on and thought was really cute. And she thought he maybe have said something about special needs kids. And she was over it, done, (laughs) had nothing more for him. So I thought that was funny. Um, So yeah, especially those two groups, you won't say anything bad about them when you're around her because she'll let you know about it. Natalie, talking about more funny as they go along, she's she is quick, and she has this little smirk, half-smile thing she does. And so it's cute and funny, and it just kind of meshes all together really well. So that's she's funny, and she's caring. And then, and then Zachary is our last child. Oh, this is going to be hard to hear if our other children listen to this. They all think William's my favorite, and I don't have a favorite. I don't. But he, he's got your brains. He's got... He's got compassion. He's he's a good human being. Like, all of our kids are good human beings. But there's really something special about Zachary, I think. He is a good human being. He's, he's goofy. And that interferes with your relationship sometimes. But... Yeah, I need seriousness. Everybody needs to be serious. we got to get things accomplished around the real household. But he, that boy, he's got something special about him. Yeah, it's interesting as I watch all my kids, um, they they all have gifts and they all have things that are going to challenge them and you can see how it's going to play out a little bit in their lives. William is probably the most like me in terms of being an eight on the Enneagram, uh, in terms of just like he's a justice warrior. And Emily is, like you said, when it comes to special needs kids or the LGBT community, she is like the first one in our family to step forward and say, nope, we're not going to do that. If you're going to hurt these people, then I'll be the first one to push back. Uh, Natalie has a, it's almost a dark sense of humor, but it's hilarious. She And she, I think, is the wittiest of our four kids. She's the quickest. When something's said, she doesn't even need a quarter of a second and something intelligent and funny and 
witty is coming out. And uh, she's artistic yes, as well. She's, she's, she's yeah, artistic, she's our artist. And it's fun to see. And then Zachary is, he's the most probably brain smart of the four kids. Uh, hes He comes off a little drier, but his wheels are always spinning and he's coming up with cool things. He, he was questioning the existence of God as a seven-year-old taking the, the discussions from the missionaries. Uh, in Ohio, we'd give the missionaries practice by letting them teach some of the children of record before they get baptized. Zachary is also great with instruments. He's kind of natural at it. He'll he'll hear a tune played or he'll he'll hear a YouTube video or something and uh, or he hears a song on the radio or he or he hears uh, uh, the lyrics to a song on a YouTube video or something like that. He will come home and like walk up to the piano and within like 30 seconds he's got it. And then and then like a year later you just say like hey play this thing you heard that one time that you played again and he'll just play it again like he knows his memory just works that way. And something else fascinating about that, he doesn't know how to play the piano by the way. So that's fun. He doesn't right. I don't think if you said Zach what's this key, he wouldn't know what that particular key is. So he just goes off by sound. He's but he's got a little orchestra. bit of like an idiot savant. Yeah, in him. he does. And he's in the orchestra so he plays the big stand-up bass. Not the guitar, but the big stand-up one, and it's awesome. So yeah, he'll go and figure it out on the piano, and then he'll play it for his friends at school on his bass, and he likes video games, being a 13-year-old boy, and so he'll go to school and play all these little video game melodies, and yeah, I'm sure Brothers he's a rock star amongst his friends with that. So that's fun. And I will have to, to say here, so William... He he tried sports a little bit, but he doesn't like organized sports. He'd rather play backyard football or something. Um, so where you and your brother were sports people, my family was musical. And so our children picked up on the musical side. So I have to give a shout out to your parents because they did so good coming to concerts after all the right all the sporting events. Right. So our family I would go to baseball games. your parents were amazing for that yeah we go to our family we play football we play basketball we play baseball we play golf and if there was another sport that you know volleyball at a family reunion any of those kind of things our family is uber competitive and that's what we do and so as a parent i'm, I'm hopeful like oh my kids are gonna play sports and i'll get to enjoy that aspect of watching your kids do these things and every one of my kids said like nope to sports and jumped into choir and orchestra and band uh, and so it was it was an interesting thing for me to have to shift into appreciating that kind of ability versus the athletic ability that goes into sports. So the first decade of our marriage, maybe the first 15 years of our marriage, you work as a nurse's aide, hmm. uh, which was the job that you worked while I was in college. And it's the job that you worked for most of our, our the early half of our marriage. And, and then after that, you became a teacher's aide and wondered maybe if you could just talk a minute about those two careers and what you what you liked about those or any experiences you had or things that were important to you that you learned from that. Yes. So um, I never figured out, I still haven't, what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I'm like, you know, graduating school and I'm like, I need a grown-up job. And... Bill's mom is a, an LPN at a nursing home, and so, I don't know, that seemed like something maybe I could do one day. So you start off as a nurse's aide, and so in the long-term facility, which are nursing homes, that's 
the really crappy job. You're giving showers, you're rolling them over every two hours, you're feeding them, you're, you know, all the dirty work is what you're doing. And I did that for 15 years and it, it got too hard on my body, so I had to quit it. But the stories you would hear, if you just, it's hard to take moments because you're so busy trying to get everything done you have to get done. But the stories you could hear from our elderly folks is, is amazing. And I, I loved the Alzheimer's unit because they would look in your eyes and they would speak at me in a way that they saw me instead of, you know, like how everyday people just kind of look at you and, and move on. So they were dear to my heart and I loved them. And so then, yes, um, our kids are starting to go to school. So I wanted something you know, to work with their schedule. At the time, I was a little spoiled, and I only had to work every other weekend as a nurse's aide. Um, but like I said, I was able to start working hours with the school, so then naturally I'm like, okay, I'll be a teacher's aide. So what that means is you work with special needs children. I worked with some younger kids, but I don't like the younger kids. And my last two years, I had a student I worked with. Um, the special needs children can go to school until they're 22, and so they built this program for the older kids that we taught them life skills. So we would go down to local businesses and clean. And, and our school was actually in our state theater downtown. So that was really fun. We got to clean the theater. We get to watch shows and walk down by the lake. And, and it was really fun. Um, this one story in particular I love and I think is so funny. So the kid I worked with for those last two years, he's probably about 6'3". If he was an atypical child, he would have been your all-star of all the sports, the quarterback, the point guard, the pitcher. His hand-eye coordination was amazing. But he was nonverbal, and we would take walks, and sometimes he would like to fall behind. So I would put my hand on his back to keep him up with the rest of the group. And he stopped. And he looked at me, and so he's towering over me, and he goes, and he's just growling at me because he's nonverbal, right? And I just look at him, and I'm like, I don't care how mad you are. You get up there with the group, and you stay with the group. And then I just had a laugh, and there was another teacher's aide in the classroom, and we just laughed. And I'm like, Miss Sherry, I think I just got cussed out. <laughs> so that was fun. Not relevant to anything, but I thought it was a really funny story, and I really like it. As a, as a nurse's aide, I know you did CPR at least once. Um, do you remember if it was more than that? I'm thinking it was twice, but... It feels like twice, but the one really stands out in my mind. And boy, when they talk about adrenaline rush, you get an adrenaline rush. And we were able to start CPR, and then when the EMT got there, they took over, and she stayed alive until she got to the hospital, but she did end up passing there, but... I hate to say that was a cool experience, but it was. Um, yeah, I, I just I, I remember always being grateful or honored in a way that that was the job you did, and then you moved into this other job of taking care of uh, these special needs kids as a teacher's aide. And I always looked up to you as uh, working with these. And what people don't know, and maybe I've said it on the podcast before, but I really had an aversion to old people and nursing homes. And so to watch you go into that space, like happily, 
enjoying your job was like twice as much pleasure if, if, it, if I didn't have that aversion. And then, and then you're helping these older people who are in the late stages of their life. And, and you took your job seriously. You're, you're helping these people feel comfortable. You're helping these people to be, you know, be happy uh, to the extent that you can in some of these situations. And some, I know, I know for a fact, cause my mom worked at the same place you did. My mom is an LPN. And so I've watched that career, that field my entire life. And I see how it burns some people out and they just don't care anymore. And I watch you and I watch my mom uh, take your job seriously and and always try to affect for the good for the people that you were taking care of. And then I would visit you often when you were doing the, the teacher's aid job and bring you lunch or come down and visit with you. And you just always had a fun group of kids and it just seemed like you were always having a good time with them and really enjoying that. Everybody was always smiling and laughing and telling jokes. It just seemed like a really fun atmosphere uh, to be in. I want to move now kind of like more more maybe the last five years and kind of looking back, even now looking back. And so I want to start with this one, which is our marriage is like, what are your thoughts? Do we do we have a good marriage? What is What are some of the maybe challenges we've had? What are some of the things that have gone really well and, and maybe just overall do you what what do you think of of the 21 years we've been together so yes i think we have an amazing marriage um like you said earlier of course we had our bumps and bruises along the way if somebody tells you they have a perfect marriage they're lying to your face um but yeah you know who you are so, you're liars you're liars so yes um you ruled with a heavy thumb at times, um, but you also, you love me dearly, and I think that always trumped everything. Um, when I when I talk to people about you, I always tease, oh, I hope he never takes off his rosy-colored glasses, or I tell people, I feel really bad because I know there's women out there that would love the adoration and the attention that you give me. And sometimes I get so overwhelmed with it. It's almost like I'm peeling you off of me and it makes me feel bad because I know there's women out there that don't get that. So the way that you love and adore me has trumped some of the bad behavior, I think. And that outweighed some of the other things. Um, I've, you know, I've heard a relationship compared to a bank and you know sometimes you put in and sometimes you're taking out but as long as you're putting more in than you're taking out and so I think the way in which you love me has done that that it's put more coins in the in the piggy bank um, to kind of balance some of that out um, and so life is hard when you're raising children so the kids are young you're working I'm mostly at home raising the kids and just life in general can be very hard when you're raising kids. So now our kids are older, our youngest is 13, we're we're living our life now and having a good time and in some ways I think now is a little bit harder than before but for def different reasons. Um, we've been on this journey since leaving Mormonism of you know, self-bettering and just kind of letting go of some of the shields and being vulnerable. And so when you when you sit with that and you get into that space, you see the shadows and they can be very ugly. And so 
as we are personally shifting and growing, then we have to figure out what we look like after that. So we're having some hard conversations and and some difficult things in the end only bring us closer together, I believe. And so I think our relationship is amazing right now. Yeah, I, I agree. It's hard. Like, I want the audience to hear, like, us talk about our shadows and talk about our flaws and the things we did wrong, specifically the things I did wrong. And, and I, as I'm sitting there, she, as she's saying those things, I'm thinking about, like, my growing up. And I had, I literally, I've said it before, I've, I've had the best childhood ever. And yet my mom and my dad both had some shadows and they had some, some angles to their personality that were, were more, had more tension to them. Um, and, and I know like as, as children, we, whether genetic or whether learned, we pick up some of those shadows from our parents. And so my parents are good people. And so I'll, I'd like to think I turned out to be a really good person, but at the same time, like I've carried some of those shadows along from, from my parents. And I think that's natural to do that. And I think as you point out, as we've gotten older, especially the last four or five years, it's to the point where, you know, it's going to hurt, but you don't want to pretend anymore. You don't want to cover them up. You don't want to shield them. You want to start letting, letting yourself kind of open up a whole bunch and allow your partner to like really see you. And and so some of these unhealthy mechanisms, they just they become a point where they're just they no longer they no longer can just sit there unquestioned. They have to be they have to be taken apart. They have to be exposed. They have to have light shined on them. And so it's it's hurt a ton uh, to go through this kind of developmental process. But it's also been fun because you and I, I think, have both moved so much, and yet I, I'm still madly in love with you. Uh, and I and I know you're madly in love with me. I mean, you can certainly say that if you want, but I just I see you adore me back. It it goes both ways. And so to the audience, maybe just the recognition, like cut yourself some slack. We're not the same person we were a decade ago. We're not the same person we were 20 years ago. And, and as we go through life, like we are broken, we are messy, we are complex, we've, we're not doing this thing right. Uh, and so as we go through time and, and we get exposed to healthier ways of doing this human thing, like we're all trying to grow and become better. But my, my suggestion would be to be vulnerable. Um, and I think the two of us have, have done that, at least in the last five years, done that to a huge extent different than early in our marriage. And I think one of the biggest, most important, I think I've learned in only the last maybe three months is to give each other clean slates. You have to break free of the past. Like you can say, hey, we can't live off the past anymore. But I think you almost have to really make a conscious, we need a clean slate. We cannot act and react on old motives. So we both just need to clean slate, start over. And the fun thing is you can do that as many times as you need and as you want. And as long as you are doing it in a healthy space to try to, to be better, give yourself and your partner permission to have a clean slate and just keep starting over. Yeah, we had some friends. I can't remember who it was. I just remember being in the conversation with friends and it was a, it was a female and she said, yeah, every two years I sign a new two-year lease with my spouse 
And and I, I you know, you think early on in your marriage, like, oh, this is who we are. This is how we operate. This is how we do this thing. And then you realize a decade later that you're doing it differently and it's working better or it's working worse in some areas. And now 20 years in, like I now know, like I will not be the same person in six months. I won't be the same person in two years for sure. And I might be a completely different person in five. And uh, it's been fun just to kind of enjoy that with you. Uh, I'll say in your favor, I've never been unhappy with my life. I've always been content and happy with my life. And so I'm, I'm one of these people that I get up on the right side of the bed and I go to bed with a smile on my face. And in large part, it's because of the woman I've got in my life. She's, um, she's just been like an incredible life partner. She's, she's what's the word? You, you bend with things and you never break. I'm malleable. You're malleable. That's right. That's and what the Pisces is. I'm a malleable there, sign. There it is. <laughs> so you, you bend with things... You've just been, I think, the perfect compliment to me. And and we talk about this before. We talk about this all the time, actually. You and I, we're really not meant for each other, right? Like, we're, <laughs> like we are complete opposites to the point where if you were to line people up and have them describe how they grew up and what they did and what they want out of life, like, we would have been the furthest away from each other, right? I think so. So, since I did bring up a Zodiac, if anybody is interested at all in Zodiac signs... I'm Pisces, you're Virgo, we are on the opposite sides of Venus. We don't belong together. We're not supposed to work. Uh-uh. And but yeah, when we, we do, it's magic. But when and we I do, it's magic. And I can tell you, We're it's a magic, magic a lot. So there's a lot of magic in the real house. A household. lot of magic. <laughs> it's like David Copperfield and the Statue of Liberty disappearing. It's that kind of magic. <laughs> and But yeah, we butt heads. We're both very strong-willed. We both uh, are really tough on each other and not give each other a break at times. But most of the time, it works really, really good. I want to I want to go into now, like maybe the last, again, five, six years. We've been here in Utah for four years. Your your thoughts when I first ha- started having a faith crisis? I, it's got to be around 2012. I I probably am maybe a bishop for a year or so, year year and a half, and my world starts to fall apart. And for a long time, for months on end, I'm keeping it a secret from you. I'm just pretending. I'm just going through the motions, figuring I'll figure this out. And then if I figure it out, like there's no need to bring her into this and mess up her world because I'll just figure it out. And then I'll go back to where I was. And then I realized like it's not going back. I can't get the toothpaste back in the tube and I'm trying like hell to do it. Your thoughts maybe as I, as I'm having my faith crisis and you begin to sense something's out of place or even when I come to you and tell you it's out of place. Um, so I could see you're in turmoil and you're, you're struggling, but I don't know what with. And, you know, I remember I would say to you, is it church or something else? Cause being a Bishop, I know you can't talk about it. And so I don't think all of those times were necessarily when you were dealing with our ward members. And so I, I could see that in you, there's a struggle, but I can't put my finger on it and I don't know what it is. Until one day you can't hold it by yourself anymore and you tell me. And so like I've, I've prefaced you guys with before is I knew I was never good enough for the church. Even though I was checking the boxes outwardly, I never had all claws in. And so I think somehow for some reason it was really easy for me to look at you and say, let's go church hopping then. Yeah, and that response was 
magical because now rather than feeling like, oh my gosh, there's a deadline. I've got to figure this out in this amount of time. I now knew that you were there with me hand in hand. And so it gave me permission to slow down and say like, oh, if it takes me five years to process this and figure it out and either arrive back at the conclusion that the church is true or arrive at the conclusion it just absolutely isn't, no matter what, you were you were on the journey with me. Um, and so it was so reassuring. Like I had I'd read and heard on podcasts and, and read on blogs all these divorces that happen. And, and it was like immediately, like you didn't even think, you didn't even pause and weigh it. It wasn't like you had a few bad days. It was like the very second I told you I'm having a faith crisis, your immediate reaction was, okay, so what? I'm, I'm, I'm married to you. I'm not married to the church. And so when you first told me, I didn't know of any of these stories. And like you're telling me, you know, after you finally were able to breathe and have this relief, you share with me like people get divorced over these things. And I was so mind blown. I'm like, what? I didn't marry the church. I married you. And so it, it kind of opened my eyes to these couples who are essentially, I guess, marrying the church. And it made me really sad. Yeah, we were at a Thomas McConkie fireside. Uh, and these folks have already told their story. It's Andrew and Allison Jolly. Uh, if you go to Mormon Stories, John DeLynn interviewed the Jollies. The Jollies are good friends of mine. We've we've been around them on, on a, several occasions, hung out with uh, both Andrew and Allison. Uh, beautiful people. And we're at this Thomas McConkie workshop. And these two, these two beautiful people, look at each other while the rest of the room is sitting around in a circle and they say, look, our marriage is fantastic. Everything about our marriage is awesome and good and solid and positive, except for the church. She's in. I'm out. I don't want her to go. She wants me to be there. And we're probably going to get divorced over this. And I remember like you, I think it was like the first time you're like, oh, my gosh, you're right. That really happens. Um, and it was it was a moment where you and I were both in tears and so was everybody else in the room, because I think we all kind of wrestled with this, oh my gosh, this thing that takes up three hours of week in our entire week really, really is knotted into every piece of our life, and it really does make or break so many marriages. Yeah, so I, I believed the stories, obviously, but when you see it firsthand and like that, oh, it's so heartbreaking. So my heart goes out to those couples that don't make it through this. Yeah, so I, I don't have advice because it's it's not it's not a simple thing of saying if you do these five things, then your marriage will make it through a faith crisis, and if you you know do these five things, your marriage will definitely end in a faith crisis. It's it's messy, it's complex, and and the the only thing I can offer is if both sides can sit and hear and listen to each other. Um, but but again, I just don't think there's a secret recipe. Uh, so Henderson, Nevada whatever it would be, five years ago now, uh, there is uh, the Bloxham family, multiple parts of the family, uh, you know, listening to the podcast. Uh, this is early on. This would have been around the time that I do white shirts, uh, Our Bad Days, Our Bad Days. That was an episode that, that the Bloxhams talked about listening to and it being really touching to them. Uh, Clay Bloxham, who's been on the podcast before, uh, first Vision episode, I think the Fraudulent Narrative of the Book of Mormon episode, as well as a few others. 
he reaches out to me, invites me to do a fireside in Henderson, Nevada. So you and I go to Henderson and we meet this incredible family, these two brothers, Chris and Clay and their wives, um, Don and Heather, and, uh, and all their kids are incredible. And we go out to Henderson, Nevada, maybe talk for a little bit about that trip and things that stood out to you. Because it really, it's one of those moments in life where you really get picked up and you're set down on a completely different path. And and everything's just been so gorgeous since then that, that you and I were just like the amount of gratitude we have towards the Bloxham family uh, for what they've done for our lives is just incredible. Uh, and it all starts with that weekend. Maybe maybe talk about that for a moment. Yes, that weekend. So, you know, my first thoughts are Bill is just a dude. I'm married to him. I don't know what all this hype is about. And we get there and everybody's looking at you in awe. And I'm like, y'all are really weird because <laughs> Bill's just my husband. <laughs> right. He's just a guy who records in his garments in our living room. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, in awe as well. And I'm so proud of you. I mean, of course, I know who you are and I know how you handle situations. And I know, you know, I see you speak at church and things like this. So I, I know, I already know what you're going to do. Um, but it was fun to sit back and watch you do you and everybody just fascinated by it. And um, so I was really proud of you. And he's probably told you guys already, but no, I don't listen to the podcast. So, you know, and especially earlier on. Um, so this is his thing. So I was kind of just doing my own thing and. And just along for a vacation. Yeah, yeah, I was along for a vacation, a and it was a lot of fun. Got to meet some some good people. But yeah, it was almost right away. I think there was something special between the two blocks and brothers and their wives and us. Like they are just amazing people. And at first, I thought Chris was being really weird. But now that we know him, it's just Chris. He's asking all these questions. You know, do you have you ever thought about moving away from home, and what would that look like, and just all these weird questions, which made sense Very after inquisitive. we went home and he said that he needed you to work for him. It's probably the first time, too, where people are, somebody's being vulnerable, like asking you real questions. They're not just saying, like, what do you think about the weather and how are the Cleveland Browns doing or, right. uh, you know, what are your kids doing in school? Like, it was like real questions about how your life is messy and complicated. The Bloxoms very quickly are just showing themselves and inviting you to be vulnerable. Yes, so that first night, they had put us up at the Aria. Beautiful hotel. On the Strip. Yeah. yeah gorgeous. Wonderful view. You remember opening the window, the, the curtain up? Yep. Looking and out over Vegas. It was, yeah, it was just amazing. We've never been to Vegas before. Um, we've been to Niagara Falls, and I think that's kind of the biggest thing we did. We have went to Florida, the Universal Studios. So this was just, you know, a really cool experience, and they really spoiled us in this fact. And then... The other couple nights we were there, we stayed in their home, which is amazing because we could have been crazy. They could have been crazy, but luckily everybody was really cool. Just and, cool people. And uh, we were able to start a really wonderful friendship at, in that moment, in that weekend. And they just took care of us. And then, like I said, Chris looked at Bill and like, I need you to work for me. And... And he brings us to St. George, and so he's showing him around the shop, and Don's showing me around the area, and it was just so amazing. Like, 
these these four people just cared for us so much and they don't know who we are. Yeah. And they've just they've still after all this time have just been so amazing. Nobody had ever up to that moment in our lives invested in us like that. Right. Right? Um and and I and if if this part makes it in it's because Chris gave the okay for it. Um uh, so maybe this part will get cut out and if it does the listener you'll never even hear it. But there is uh this first weekend um I remember it being Sunday and I've got my my Mormon helping hands shirt on. And uh, and I'm still in the church. I mean, I'm still like trying to make it work, but I'm also now I'm not orthodox anymore. And I realize that that there are some very unhealthy things about the church. And so I'm willing to let loose and have some fun. And so we're sitting at the, the area where we stayed. Um, and we come out, we go to a, a buffet, which by the way, you go to a Vegas buffet at a nice hotel, you pay, I don't know what it was. It was 25, 30 bucks a plate or something, but every single food that is made around the entire world is sitting in this buffet all around it. And, and so the Bloxums take us out for breakfast but it's everything. General Tso's chicken, crab legs, mashed potatoes and gravy, eggs over easy, waffles, chicken and rice, like whatever you Fruit, want. Yeah, you anything. name it. You name a food, I guarantee it's on their buffet. And as we get done eating at the buffet, uh, I'm kind of, you know, again, I, this is me boasting, but I'm a smart guy. And I quickly try to figure out like shortcuts to things. I try to figure out like what's the easiest way around something. And so for a moment, we're talking about the casinos and how gambling works. And I say, look, I've got this idea, and it's it's the Martingale uh, betting system for roulette, where you place the minimum bet on black, and if black loses, you double down on black. So let's say it's five bucks. You put five bucks on black, it rolls into red. Now you put ten bucks on black. It rolls into red. Now you put twenty bucks on black. It rolls into red. Now you put forty bucks on black, and you keep doubling down because the chances of it being, you know, eight blacks in a row or eight reds in a row is minimal. Like it's like 0.12% or something. It's minimal. And so the risk is huge if by chance it does that. It goes eight reds in a row. But it almost always doesn't. And so every time that you win, you've won five bucks. And so I'm explaining this to the Bloxums. And and Chris is like, you know what? Heck with it. Let's just go try it. Let's just go try it. And I, I wasn't expecting that. Like I'm telling him this cool thing. And I'm not expecting him to like, all right, you're smart. I can tell that. You've got this system. Let's go give it a shot. And so we go up to the roulette table and we sat there for whatever it was, an hour. And at the end of the hour, you know, he's got another 150 bucks in his pocket or whatever. Because it wasn't my money. I'm poor. I'm, I'm sitting in Ohio and, and selling carpet for a living. And uh, we're barely getting by. We have a, a $55,000 home. And every week we're talking about how we got to buy groceries, how are we going to meet these bills? How are we going to pay this when we have this thing that's, that's due? And so we had these challenges and all of a sudden we're with this person who has some means uh, and him and his wife were just gracious to us. They just gave us a fun time. Uh, and then Chris's brother, Clay, put us up in his home. His wife, Heather, super, super nice. These are smart people. They're kind people. They're people who, uh, when when they see other good people, they they invest themselves, and it's just it was fun to watch. Uh, we're walking down the strip in Vegas. I don't remember if it was the second night or the third night, but we're walking down the strip in Vegas. We're just walking around. We got the frozen hot chocolates. You remember that? Mm-hmm. And uh, we're in you know essentially the strip of Vegas, walking around, and these these guys like it was the first time I had ever 
been in a conversation, the six of us talking, husbands, wives, and we're just talking like so vulnerably about Mormonism and what this issue was and whether this issue has answers or how does that work and this causes harm over here. I'd never been around people that I could bounce the things that I had spent my life reading and learning about and they could match me step for step and they would add insight into something I brought up and I would add an insight into something they brought up. And it was like you had met these people who not only had you not had you not only had you known them your entire lives, but it's almost like you had spent a lifetime in the same career, studying the same material, teaching the same college course. And, and it was just fun to be around people. I'd never been around that before. Somebody who could walk with me step for step as, as we discussed Mormonism. Uh, and again, just good, solid people. So we, we did a little gambling that weekend. We got to know some really cool people. We did the fireside. Uh, any other thoughts about that weekend that stick out in your mind? Not in particular, no. Just good fun, good people. So we do the move. We move to Santa Clara. We rent a house there. I move a month before you. You you move in the day before the carpet actually goes into the house we're moving into. So we're on a concrete floor. The kids stay at a hotel with Grandma and Grandpa Boggs. And you come stay with me at this new house. It's a used house. It's, a, you know, it's, a, it's not a new house. But for us, it was new. It was just repainted. Uh, some new cabinetry work was done. Uh, and they put the carpet in the day after you get there. And we move in. Um, and so we're in Santa Clara. Your thoughts on the move? What was it like to, to pick up your family and go across the country into this, this scary space of not really knowing what you were getting into? So that's a little bit fascinating. Um, so I am a crier. My Disney movies, commercials, if you're crying, I'm crying. We banned I, Hallmark. It was it was making the <laughs> tissue bill go way too high. I am a crier. And so, like Bill said, he, he left a month before us. So he moved in February. We moved in March. So I had the children for Easter dinner over at his parents' house. And this is when they're saying goodbye to their grandchildren and we had the only grandchildren for a long time. It was just him and his brother. And so they are the best grandparents and they adore our children. And this was just ripping their hearts out. So that Easter was so hard on them and the children. And I am somehow not crying. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, you guys. Everything's going to be okay. I'm not crying. This is the weirdest thing to me. My parents were able to help me move because um, we had the U-Haul and our, our van. And so we had lots of drivers to help me across. So I think we made it faster than anybody anticipated because we pretty much went straight because we had like five drivers. And so we just kind of went straight through. And, you know, so, yeah, we get all moved in. My parents help put the house away. And they just are were amazing and made life so easy on me in the aspects of packing up one house and unpacking it in a new home. They were so amazing. And it was time for them to leave. And I still didn't cry. And so I thought that was the weirdest thing. But I think with the Bloxhams being so awesome people, like I knew we at least had them in this strange place. And I I was ready for an adventure. This was This was new. It was exciting. And I think I was... I think I was just ready for it. And so it, 
It was really exciting to me. It, um, if you were to sit down and write down all the scenarios, like all the scenarios, like maybe my bosses, because it's, it's two brothers and their wives that own the company that I work for. So maybe the four of them are jerks. Maybe, maybe I'm a jerk. Maybe, uh, maybe the company's ready to go out of business. Maybe, uh, maybe I get sick a lot. Maybe, you know, there's a, a, a billion scenarios of things that can go right, things that can go wrong. And it, it literally, like literally, I would not want to roll the dice ever again. It literally feels like uh, it was the, the, whatever the best scenario is, whatever that scenario is, that's the scenario that happened. Uh, the, the Bloxums just have, were, have been great friends. They have provided us an opportunity that was tenfold greater than my career back in Ohio. Uh, they provided uh, support to our family when we moved here. They helped us get acclimated. They were there every step of the way. The, the other folks that are just outside of that circle that have become good friends of ours inside the circle in the last, say, two or three years. Like, I just feel like we have the best life on the planet. Um, And and it just feels like everything went right. Now I get it. Life's hard. And there's going to be challenges. And we we have challenges in our life. We have some struggles with a couple of our kids as we try to encourage kids to make good decisions. As most of you parents know, kids sometimes challenge that. Um, we, We have issues. I've got some health issues back in Ohio with family. Uh, and so there certainly is adversity, but in terms of having beautiful, wholesome friends, like whole, like just whole friend, like they're, they're vulnerable, they're authentic, they're real, they're funny, they're smart, they're developed, um, and people that you can just trust and you could, that love you back, uh, this couldn't have gone any better. No, we've, we've hashtag tender mercies. Yeah, that's, that's it. So... Um, and it, it's strange too, right? Because as I'm deconstructing Mormonism, I, I should I should be having bad things happen. Again, we we play this debate, like here's your blessings, and if you turn on God, then here's what happens. And if you turn on Mormonism, which is God, right? These leaders represent Him, then all these things are supposed to go south, and and that just doesn't happen. It, it's it's good thing after good thing after good thing um, as, as we're deconstructing this religious system. And then, and then kind of to hit the peak of like, oh, that's it. We can't do this anymore the same way we used to. November 2015, um, intellectually, I knew immediately that that didn't add up. It, I knew the theology inside and out. I knew all the quotes by the leaders. I could make the argument why that doesn't work. But it didn't work for you and the kids for different reasons. Do you want to talk about that? So where Bill is logical and and he's you know this is his road he goes down i'm i'm emotional and the kids tend why don't you say the girls are more emotional like me and the boys are more thought provoked like bill but yeah it just emotionally did not make sense and i would say that was my last straw yeah our our daughters immediately come home from school and it's like the church did this thing and and it's not okay, and it felt like you emotionally picked up right away on that same idea. Like uh, this this hurts people. This isn't this isn't healthy uh, towards these people who are different, but not bad in any way. Like they're just different. They're just doing human differently, and and all of us humans are doing it differently. Um, 
any other thoughts on the policy in terms of like what it emotionally felt like as as you were trying to kind of reconcile that? Well, it seems like through my faith journey going along with yours, I, I became a cafeteria Mormon, just kind of picking and choosing what sounded and felt good and didn't. And so I was kind of cafeteria. And then when the policy hit, like I said, that was just, that was just it. I, I was done. How, how, all right. So let me ask this. We'll kind of finish up maybe the church part of this. Um, do you remember specifically kind of like when your, like your insides shift and you're like, okay, this thing isn't where I want to be anymore. Do you remember like what what was going on at that time, or what was going on inside you? It, it's kind of hard to kind of pinpoint where it started. Um, you know, I kind of would let go of one thing at a time. I think in everybody's faith journey, it it falls apart along the way. But I think my defining moment when I finally said, I am done enough is enough, is uh, just a little small backstory. Um, when I was little, I was molested by one of my brothers quite often. But I was always making excuses for him. Oh, he was in the wrong friend group. He got into drugs early. This or that. I was always making excuses for him. Let's jump back up to, to this po- this point. I liked reading near-death experiences and some of the books it's almost like we're in a classroom and like okay you guys we're gonna go down we're gonna get bodies but somebody has to have cancer and then they're like oh me 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 i will do that or you know somebody's gonna have to have diabetes somebody's gonna get in a car crash you know if these scenarios and so i'm always making excuses for god we don't know the big picture and we just don't know the full story so when i realized I was making excuses for God that I was making for my perpetrator. I was like, what the hell? No, I am not okay with this. And I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore. There's not going to be any more excuses for an absent God in my life. Right. So you don't, so you don't make, you don't allow God to get off the hook anymore. Um, and, I, and I find that fascinating. We had a we had a daughter who ran away for a day, and it felt really serious. It felt like she had just gotten in her vehicle and sped off, and and she just didn't didn't want to follow the rules at home. And so she takes off. And I remember you being really angry. Like if there's a God, he's he's dropping the ball here. Like if if there's a God, there has to be miracles. And and it's not like this was this rough thing for us. But it was almost like it was an insight into all the evil in the world, all the bad in the world. And you realize, like, there's a lot of shitty things going on and God's just nowhere to be found. And then we're supposed to believe he helps this Mormon girl find her keys to her Jetta. And it just doesn't make any sense. Like, the philosophical problem of evil is real. And we always make excuses for when it happens to other people in the world. But when it's your own backyard, all of a sudden, God gets real. Um, and, and suddenly you sense like, oh, people have really rough lives. There's girls sold into the sex trade business. There's mm-hmm. children starving in, in third world countries. There's people who are body ridden with cancer and people who deal with relationship issues, sex abuse, other things that go on. And yet we're supposed to believe that if I say a prayer for it to stop raining and it stops raining, that's God. 
Or if I if I can't find my keys and I say a prayer and I find them, that's God. And it, it just all of a sudden didn't make sense anymore. So yes, that that was kind of this big epiphany that God was absent and I was no longer making excuses for why he's just not there. So people don't believe, I and mean, people always think like Bill Reel's the instigator, Bill Reel's the one who's pulling people out of the church, but uh, it was you and the kids who were throwing your hands up and throwing the white towel in uh, on Mormonism before me, right? Like Way before you. We were so glad when Sunday morning you rolled over and said, I cannot do this anymore. You know, the girls, we were in walking distance because we're in Utah from our ward, and the girls were just in the bathroom the whole day, and I said, Bill, just let them walk home. You know, because in the real household, you go to church. We go to church. And I said, let them go home. They're in the bathroom. This isn't doing anything for them. You know, and I'm an adult, so I can be there and be a trooper. And and something about Bill is if you have a commitment, you follow it. So I was one of the team teachers in our youngest son's primary class, which was the oldest class. And so I taught every other week. And it was my turn to teach. And so I get up and try to get myself together to go because it's my turn to teach. And he rolls over and he says, I can't do this anymore. And at that moment, I knew something major shifted in him because if you don't fulfill your commitment, that is not okay. And he just told me it's not happening. So I saw the shift and I was very excited at the same time. Yeah, so for 20 years, essentially, 1996, I get baptized in April of 96, right? Yes. Just as we're finishing Mm -hmm. up our senior year. So 2006, 2016, so 20 years in Mormonism, and I might have missed one Sunday... And that was to go play in a golf scramble with my dad. And I don't think I missed a, a, a Sunday outside of that for those 20 years. Um, we were vacation goers oh, to yeah. church. Oh, yeah. If you went on vacation, you found a ward to go to. If if you were somewhere, you know, you just you went to church. That's what the reels did. And I was big on costly signaling, letting other members of my ward know that I was doing this Mormon thing the right way. So my kids have to be there. My wife's got to be there. I was... I was all in and trying to do this thing like the way they tell us to do it. And it just, yeah, it fell apart. And it had fallen apart. You know, again, this is a process. Like my wife said, it's piece by piece. But at some point, it was just like, okay, it became so toxic that it was no longer, uh, had no longer had any net benefit to it. It was all pain. It was all trauma. And, and that was it. We, we just said, that's it. This is it. I'm not going. And my wife goes, shoo, thank you. I didn't want to go. I haven't been wanting to go for months. Uh, my kids were probably like, yeah, I haven't wanted to go for years. And, and so the reels threw the towel in and we stopped going. Was it difficult? We stopped going. We just didn't go. Like, did it, was it hard? <laughs> I laugh because am I supposed to say it was easy to stop going? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and, and I think another funny part of the story is our youngest son at the time was just getting ready to turn 12. And so we kind of left it up to him. Right. We'll keep going if you want to get the priesthood. Yeah. We, I said, hey, bud, it's a rite of passage. Do you want the priesthood? Do you want to pass sacrament? Do you want to do all these things? And my young, cool kid is like, meh. So I'm like, yes. 
Right. Do you want to you want to break white pieces of bread up into pieces and pass it around? And uh, he just wasn't interested. Nah, not a big deal. And 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 in part too, it was some ways grateful that we moved because if we lived in Ohio, we loved those people so much, still do, that we likely would still be going to church. Yes. Because those friendships were like real. Right. Um, and so we had, you know, five, six, seven couples back in Ohio that were in the same ward. And, and back in the mission field, I mean, it's, I think it was 11 cities, three counties that our ward geographically took up. You just don't run into Mormons every day. And so when you saw your friends on Sunday, it was a big deal. You wanted to see them. And so there was a huge social aspect to it. And so if we were still in Ohio, we probably would have still kept going even as the religion part of it hurt because the social part of it would have still been a huge net benefit. Um, And so moving for that reason was hard, losing those friends, but it made it easy to step away because these these members in Utah, it it just wasn't the same. They weren't going to invest in you the way these people in Ohio did. Yeah, we were in Ohio. We were looking for excuses to see each other during the week. We'd have girls' night in, girls' night out, recipe club, game nights, game nights with with couples. You know, let's do dinner. Let's so do volleyball, yeah, volleyball night. So we were looking for excuses to see each other during the week as well as on Sunday and just open arms and hugs and just delight into seeing each other. And then we move out here. It was a completely different world. Very cold. Don't look at me outside of our three-hour block. Right. I you have mow no the grass use for you. And the person across the street's mowing their grass, and you just ignore each other. You don't talk to each other. It's, it's much more business-like. It's much more cold. Uh, and there are still good people out here. We, we certainly formed friendships. And there were people that, had they been in Ohio, that probably would have clicked a lot better um, but for whatever reason out here it's just it just feels colder it's just a different atmosphere out here and then another move we were lucky at is um, so we were renting our house because we still own a house in Ohio and finally when things worked out we could buy um, is when we actually stopped going to church when Bill rolled over and said I can't go anymore and we just stopped attending it was Shortly after that, that we were able to buy our house in Washington. So there was another move, and I don't even think I we know where our ward building is right now. No, we've never been to the ward building here, and so we've been here a year and almost a year and a half. So coming up on a year and a half, and in that year and a half, we'd never even seen the ward building. Uh, so the entire time that I'm working through this process of the newest stake president that was, you know, my stake president who was working through all this disciplinary stuff, I'd never been to church once. Um, And so it was, it was easy to move and just be inactive. Um, Your thoughts, maybe just kind of, maybe just looking back, like this religion that you, you were born into, you were born into it. You're BIC, born in the covenant. (laughs) And uh, we get married in the DC temple. We raise our kids in this religion and and then we deconstruct it and we walk away. Your any any thoughts like looking back on Mormonism? What are your what are your thoughts on Mormonism? I'm not sorry for it. Um like you say in your story, it picked you up from a a path that was not good. I think you would have straightened out on yourself cuz you're a smart person, but it still picked you up. It taught you all these leadership skills and, and, and some people skills and 
you know, it taught me leadership skills as well and motherly skills. So there is good with the bad. And I think the biggest reason I'm not sour about it is because without it, we wouldn't be here. Our lives are so amazing right now. And without Mormonism, we would not have this life. So it gave us it gave us good with the hurt. But while you're in it, you don't know you're hurting. Right. You don't know the trauma it causes until you put some distance between you and it. So this is not meant as any kind of dig towards our friends back in Ohio who were part of the Snusky Ward. Good, like like salt of the earth, good people. Love them. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I still look at, and, and you know, I don't want to necessarily name dropping, but the Weimers and the Walters and the Morgans and other families that were in that ward just love them to pieces. When we go home, we always hook up with them, yeah. and they're amazing. And it's like we can pick up. Yeah, pick up where we left where we off. Left. But but there is something about being in a religious system when someone's in ethnocentricity and, and the whole goal is to conform and look the part and and you don't realize it at the time, but your relationships have a little bit more of a surfacey level. Again, not because of the people, but because you're signaling to each other that you're Mormon and you're fitting in. And so you have to sacrifice a little bit of yourself to to look the part. And I wanted you to contrast that with your friends now. Like you've got We've got incredible friends. Uh, and some people think like, oh, you walked away from Mormonism and now your life is horrible and you've lost everything and you don't have any friends. And um, in fact, somebody that knew us in Sandusky was just telling me that today, that, that I had succumbed to the devil and and essentially my life was all misery. Um, but I wondered what your thoughts were on what, what life is like now and what your friends are like now, what kind of people they are and what makes... What makes the weekend so enjoyable now? Yeah, so we're we're taught that people outside of the church don't know true joy, and they're not really happy. But being that I was in, and now that I'm out, yeah, I, I, I know what true joy and happiness is. These friends of ours are just so amazing. They, what do we just learn? There's belonging and fitting in. Right. And we belong to our friends. Yeah. We don't need to fit in. They love the warts and the brokenness. And they just take us as we are. And they don't want all the garbage. Like, we don't want the garbage anymore either. As in, quit the shadows. Quit the walls. Just open up. Right. Show me you. Show me your scars. I'll show you mine. And we just love each other. And... There's no expectation, and you can be in whatever spot you're in. Like, if you still want to be a Mormon, or if you want to believe in energy, if you want to believe there's a God, if you don't want to believe there's a God, if you are a universalist, or if you want to believe in the spaghetti monster, or, you know, wherever you are in your path, they say, give it to me. I am here to hold it with you, and you're amazing. Have you looked into Pastafarianism? No. Okay. <laughs> I heard they could wear a colander to the DMV and they can't ask you to take it off. So I, uh, maybe that one might yeah, be cool. Yeah, that would be kind of fun to show people your driver's license. That's a good a good entryway into a conversation. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, you you can be fully authentic and you can just show up as you and you're loved and honored. In fact, like when I see my friends go like, hey, here's my shadow. Like I love them more now. Whereas before it would have been like, uh, don't tell me about that. Don't show me that. We got to be Mormon. We got to do this thing this way. Um, I and wanna... the fun thing about showing each other our shadows is some of them are so similar and someone has just done that or whatever. So we're like each other's therapist. Like we just open up to each other and then we're helping each other through it and we have some insights and or just say, hey, that was really hard and I'm really sorry and just be able to sit with it with you. So I've got three questions left. What what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Like what what is what are your goals now? My goals? Can I be shallow? I just want to have fun. Right. I just want to love and be loved and 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 just have fun. And 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 the listener so for the for the Orthodox member, maybe the few of those that are listening, as well as maybe people who are out too, they go like, oh, fun. That's that doesn't sound like anything like these higher levels of doing something or accomplishing something. But but it also should be said, like we are in a friend group that is constantly messaging each other about what books we're reading, what podcasts we're listening to. So I don't want the listener to perceive like this idea of having fun. It this ride naturally now has learning in it. Yes. This ride naturally now has growth and learning. And so that's that's there. That's that's absolutely present right. day in and day out. Our text group of friends, again, 14, 16, 18 of us, whatever it is now, there's a text group with all of us in it. And every day we're conversating with each other, sharing inspiring quotes, telling each other what books we just read, what podcasts we just learned from. So, so don't think for a second that we're not learning and growing. That's absolutely happening. Right. And I think that's the fun. I mean, we hit the proverbial jackpot. And I know not everybody is this lucky in finding, you know, uh, any friends. Some of you out there have nobody. And I'm so sorry. And I don't mean to brag. And, you know, but if you can find one person, you, you know, somebody can find themselves lucky. And we have found ourselves lucky yeah. 18, 20 times over. Yeah. And so, yes, the fun is being able to feed off of each other. What are you working on? What are you listening to? What are you reading? You know, what shadow are you working through? You know, this is mine. Let's do these inspirational quotes, like Bill said. And so when we just get to see each other on the weekends, it's just almost that much sweeter because we have this connection and just now you just get to give them a big hug and just almost breathe it in. And it's fantastic. Another thought I had as you were saying that was this, like, the idea of just having fun, just being present, right? Like, ju- let me just enjoy this moment. When you have, when you're, when you're in an earlier stage of development, your ego is in the way, and your ego is concerned about what the past meant means for you, and what the future holds. And as you let go of your ego, you come to a place where you're like, no, I just want to live in this moment. The past is gone. The future is, who knows what the future is. All I have is today. I have right now, this very second. And so as I'm just saying it, like I'm looking back on my life the last year or two, three, it really has been just a coming to this place of just enjoying now. Just enjoying now. Like even just sitting here with my wife and just having this conversation, I'm just enjoying now. Um, it feels really good. 
And so life is good. So I don't want the listener to think like, oh, look at that. They've given up all this goal orientation and working towards something and planning. And we do those things. It's, it's not the priority in our life, though. The priority in our life is just to enjoy the present moment. And working on these things is actually hard work, like we had mentioned earlier. It's hard. It is so hard to look at your shadows and work through them. So it's not all fun and no work. It's it's hard work. And so... Yeah, we... In the last couple of weeks, we've probably tackled... And, and we're still in the midst of it. Probably tackled maybe the biggest challenge we've ever felt like fracturing us in our marriage. And yet, I don't... I'm not angry at you. I'm not hurt at you. You're not angry at me or hurt at me, I don't think. It it feels like like we're doing this the healthiest we've ever done it. And even in the midst of tackling maybe the biggest challenge we've ever had to tackle in our marriage. We're closer it, than we've yeah, ever Yeah, it feels like we're like there's we're still holding our hands together and walking this journey together and there's no there's no fear. I'm not in my head going like, oh maybe it doesn't work. Maybe I maybe I have to walk away. Maybe this marriage is done. Maybe she'll leave me. Maybe like none of that. It's it's been so so good. We talked about what do you want to do with the rest of your life. You and essentially, you named what's most important, which is just enjoying the moment, enjoying the present, having fun with your friends. I'll add to that, like enjoying our children. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I want to finish off with the last question, which is, what do you believe now? What is what does Amanda real believe? Oh, that's interesting, huh? So, I I don't believe in God anymore. I think there's something bigger out there. Possibly, maybe. I don't know what that is. Um, is it so? It's not a bearded man on a star or on a planet near a star named Kolob. No. And and probably not a bearded man anywhere. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't think so. And. I love to listen to uh, what was his name? Well, there's Richard Rohr, well, Richard Peterson, Rohr and uh, he's John Shelby Spong. No, Rob Bell. Actually, I don't even know if I know his name. If you Sam said Harris, it. but this this kind of idea of it, you just kind of circle around Jordan it. Jordan Peterson, and the moment you title it, you've already taken away from it. Why not take on this question of the existence of God? Because it's not something to reduce to a soundbite, fundamentally. But your lectures are two hours long. This is true, but when you're talking about the most important questions that people have ever asked, then two hours isn't very long, apparently. People will watch them. So I'm not, I'm not prepared to... I'm not prepared to say things in any other way than I've already said them. You know, there... It isn't obvious what belief means. People think that what they believe is what they say they believe. I don't believe that. I believe that what people believe is what they act out. And so I said, I act as if God exists. That's a sufficient statement as far as I'm concerned. You know, what's the old saying? By their fruits ye shall know them. Same idea, right? It's, it's a matter of action and a matter of commitment. It's not a matter of me parading out my, my, my explicit statements about a metaphysical reality that's virtually impossible to comprehend. You, you risk when you reduce, and I'm not willing to do that, and I'm not interested in providing people with easy answers, including me. So, 
there's a question I, of whether you're working it out yourself. Of course. Yeah. And everyone who's honest is working it out themselves. None of us have incontrovertible knowledge about what transcends our understanding. You know, like, I certainly do think, I've learned things. I've learned that the deeper I go into the biblical stories and into religious mythology in general, cross-culturally, the less I see any bottom. You can go in it, into it forever. And, and I've learned an immense amount doing that, and much of it has transformed my life. So, and, and I also believe that the, that the West is grounded on the metaphysical presupposition that human beings have a spark of the divine in them. And I don't think there's a truer way of saying that, and I also believe that it's true. Now, what that means with regards to the ultimate metaphysical realities that, that ground the entire world, I, I, I dare not say, because I don't know. So I tend to try to say what I know and to leave the rest alone. And, and there's plenty I don't know and plenty I can't talk about. So, but I'm talking about what I can. I'm not interested in joining a club, regardless of what the club is. So, um, I'm not going to make statements of reflecting a certainty that I don't have. So, so I think that's an interesting space to swim in. Like, I think maybe there's something, but to name it would already diminish yeah. it. Yeah, if you name it, you're, you're walking in the wrong direction away from it. And so, I don't know. And, and it's fun to hear what other people think and believe as, as well. And it's just, now that you don't have to be one-sided to, to one religion and one God and to one belief, I love hearing everybody's thoughts and processes about it. And, hey, that's really cool. Or, you know, and I don't have to adopt it. I can say, hey, that's a really cool thought. And it can just be that, and I can believe something totally different, or, you know, maybe it changes every day or every week or every few months. I don't know what to say, what's out there or not, or what it is or not. I don't know. It, it was scary. The thought of losing your certainty was scary. And then having lost your certainty, like having lost my certainty was the most like fun, amazing space in the world to be in. To, to know what it isn't, but to be clueless about what it is, it has been like the most enjoyable space in the world to live in. And our friends are right there. Like, let's be respectful. Let's, let's listen to other people who are different. Let's see what makes them tick. Let's honor the, the walk of life they've chosen. But let's honor like nobody's got it. Nobody knows what it is. Nobody has the certain. Everybody pretends to have certainty. And it's not real. Um, and, and it's been such a fun space to be in. We have friends in our group who think that plants communicate. We have friends in our group who, as you pointed out, are atheists. We have friends in our group who still believe in God. We have friends in our group um, who, who believe in energy work. I mean, it's just all across the gamut. And I don't think of any one of them as silly or less than or ignorant or naive, like none of that. Like these people are all different, but they come into the space knowing like, hey, this is what I think, but I'm probably wrong too. And it's it just been so interesting to be in that. So no God, how about, how about families together forever? No. Does that scare you? It, no, and I know it really hurts you at first. Um, I remember you just like almost in tears, like 
babe, I, I love you so much. I want you to forever. Like, this life is not long enough for us to be together, which is very sweet, by the way. Yeah, it's not. But no, families aren't forever, and we're probably taking a dirt nap. Like, if our energies go on to somewhere and have new adventures, that would be really cool if we were aware of them. But yeah, it's, it's probably a dirt nap. So if it's a dirt nap and you're, you don't have your family together forever, then all you really have is this moment. There is no ifs. There is only now. Right. So you have to just enjoy now and be present. So there's the reels. There's a, a look into Amanda's life and a chance for kind of to hear us kind of play off each other. Um, if, if you take anything away from this, it would be like, don't, don't store up everything for the future. Like, figure out how you wake up today and you make the most of today and you have fun today and you enjoy your friends today and you love on your kids today. Because... Because whenever tomorrow gets here, it's also going to be today. Every every moment you live in is the present moment. And so why not just make a practice out of being present, out of, be, of being conscious of your consciousness, aware of your awareness, and living in the here and now? Any closing thoughts from you? I just appreciate you guys. I love all the support that you give to Bill and our family, and love you guys so much. Okay, so we will see you next time on another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Uh, this this episode, we sat next to each other and just had this conversation. Normally, we're, I'm doing it over Skype with people, so it had a little bit maybe of a different flavor to it. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. hope you enjoyed the chance to get to know Mrs. Real. Uh, I love her to death. I hope you do too. Um, so long. See you next time. Bye-bye. This is an invitation to all my people No matter who you are, what you don't know where you came from Everyone is different, but everyone is equal We got the same heart, we all play a part It's simple, and everything you do happens to cause a ripple And everything you say can create something beautiful Don't be afraid, go ahead and sing your song Open up your heart, you can't do it wrong Because you are already more than me So go and be yourself Even if they're watching you Then go and be yourself Nobody is watching you So go and be yourself Be yourself and no one else Be yourself and no one else Nobody is watching you So go and be yourself Even if they're watching you Then go and be yourself Nobody is watching you So go and be yourself Be yourself and no one else Be yourself and no one else Because You are already more than me
of my story I never really needed it anyway And all I ever have is this moment This moment, this moment I release and let go of my story Cause no one's even reading it anyway And all I ever have is this moment This moment, this, this moment This moment, this moment This moment, this, this moment This moment, this moment this moment, it's this moment, this moment, this moment, this moment, it's this moment, this moment, this moment, this moment, it's this moment, this moment, this moment, this moment, it's this moment, this moment, this moment, this moment, this this moment, this moment, this moment. Ready more than enough